0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, And I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram. Saying, If Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem, who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gelo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise! and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him. And all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may Yahweh show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Itai answered the king, As Yahweh lives, and as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Itai, Go then, pass on. So Itai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Welcome back, welcome back for episode 765 of this podcast. Today being Saturday, November 25th, 2023. It is my wife's and my 17th wedding anniversary. This is 2 Samuel 15 that we have in view. And like I said, Absalom is a dangerous man. He's a bad man. He's a tiger lurking in the tall grass and Now we get into the real trouble. You thought he was dangerous before. You thought he was trouble before, but now he's going for it. Now he's making his big play to be king over Israel and really to usurp his father's throne. We should probably take a look at this, right? We should probably consider Absalom in this episode in a little bit more depth. I know that's uncomfortable for some because... He's not a good guy, and this is bad, right? What he's doing, what he has done, what he's about to do, it's bad stuff. But we should also probably not just talk about Absalom. In this episode, we will be talking about marriage, Uh, my 17 years of marriage with my wife, Lauren, some lessons learned. It's an odd pairing, I know, but then our marriage, 17 years of it, it's been in some interesting times. We started our marriage back in 2006. If you can do the quick math, 17 years before 2023, you'll come to 17, I trust. So I think it'll make sense. It'll make sense by the end of it. But Absalom is where we're at right now. Absalom's conspiracy, David fleeing Jerusalem, that's where we're at. So let's talk about the passage first before we get into my personal reflections on marriage, my marriage in particular. The beginning of this chapter starts off with Absalom getting himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, an honor guard. He wants people to notice. In our day, we might see some rich young man heir to a fortune. His dad's the founder and CEO, owner of some large corporation. We might see some young man with a very expensive car. Think Lamborghini, think Ferrari, think something like that. Bugatti, Maserati, a conspicuous display of wealth and power that is not his own, but then he's trying to assert himself. He's trying to prove that, "Ah, see, I I am also important. I am also powerful. I'm also wealthy. It's not just my dad. Notice me. Look at me. Listen to me. Fear me. That's what the chariot and the horses and 50 men to run before Absalom is. It's a gratuitous, gaudy display of Wealth. He's flexing. Absalom, it says, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So he's a go-getter. He's an ambitious young man wanting to be noticed. He wants to be heard. He wants to be seen. But then what does he show when he is seen? What does he have to say when he's listened to? All of it is to the end of promoting himself. This is how Israel will see that Absalom really should be king over Israel. And it starts with undermining his father, really. It's implied, not directly stated, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. In this way, through the gaudy display of wealth and subverting his father, undermining his father, at the gate Absalom is stealing the hearts of the men of Israel and this still works right it doesn't work exactly the same way but then if we didn't have Lamborghinis and Bugattis and all the rest what would it be you know if chariots were the currency for affecting this kind of impression we would see rich young men the heirs to fortunes buying chariots and horses and hiring 50 men to run before them. You know, 50 men, is this their whole job? Is this all they do is just run before Absalom? Maybe, maybe <laughs> this is all they do. You know, this is his retinue. Think somebody like Andrew Tate. You know, wherever he goes, he's got his people. He's got his followers. He's got his court, almost, so to speak. And then what happens? People see that and they are drawn to it. The shallow ones are impressed and the ones who have a little bit more substance are intimidated because if they start stealing attention away from him or if they bump into one of these guys, well, who knows, right? Who knows what sort of guys they are? Proud, vain. They're not going to Take it lying down if you insult them, offend them, or should I say even draw attention away from them. If it doesn't work, right? If all of this show of wealth and power and supposed sophistication, if it doesn't have the desired result of people thinking that they should be the ones with the money and the influence and the authority... They should be calling the shots. If you start to eat into that or if you work contrary to that in some way, then, man, there's a lot that's been invested. You think you're going to stand in the way? You think we're going to let you make us look bad? No. And then all of a sudden, you'll be in a fight and you'll lose that fight if it's 50 guys and you don't have some mad skills, but then that's part of what is being projected is that the guy... At the center of all this, the guy with the chariot and the horses and the fifty men to run before him does have the math skills. That's how he got all of this. Never mind whether or not that's actually how he got any of this. Never mind whether he got all of this because of who his daddy was. All you're supposed to think if you ask Absalom or somebody like Absalom is how great is Absalom? Wow, that guy. You know, and Absalom is already, as we learned in the previous chapter. A very handsome man. He's a very good looking guy. He's also a patient guy. He's also ruthless. He's also dangerous. Not just that he has this wealth, not just that he has these guys who run before him, but he's dangerous. He's willing to employ all of that, bring all of that to bear to remove obstacles, to remove threats, including his own father. And it says in verse six, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, a quick thought on this. David surely knew what was up. I mean, somebody had to tell him. If he was watching this unfold and then not doing anything to interrupt it or stop it, why? You know, it's possible that David, having not come to the kingship at all, at all like this, was thinking of all of the disadvantages that he had, and he wanted to give his children everything that he didn't have. David didn't have his brothers saying, yeah, go get him, great idea, you go fight Goliath. No, they said, what are you doing? Go home, who's watching the sheep, David? Get out of here, why are you even here? David didn't have his father's confidence, because when Samuel came to visit because Samuel was there to find who would be next king over Israel when God rejected Saul. David was the only one of Jesse's sons who was not invited. He wasn't present. He was out keeping the sheep. So there's a vote of no confidence from dad, a vote of no confidence from his brothers. Maybe David with his children was too indulgent. He wanted to give them everything He didn't have as far as support. The situation with Amnon and Absalom. Maybe he was blind to what was developing before that happened, blind to the character of Amnon with regards to Tamar. Maybe he didn't want to admit that that's how his children might relate to each other. Maybe he was blind to what Absalom was capable of with regards to Amnon. Maybe he just turned off the alarm bells. They were blaring, but he was like, no. I just have trust issues. And so he overcompensated and he didn't take it seriously and he didn't deal with it and he didn't confront it like he should have because he was overcompensating. Maybe he was too generous, too lavish, giving Absalom what he never had. He sees this and he thinks, well, okay, (sighs) you know, that's maybe a little silly and maybe a little foolish, but it won't come to anything. It's just a phase. He'll grow out of it. If I just keep loving on him, if I'm just continually kind to him, he'll come around. It won't amount to anything. But then on the other hand, Nathan had told him after the situation with Uriah and Bathsheba that dissension would rise up within David's own household. And so maybe a part of David sees this coming and knows that he can't stop it any more than he could save the life of his Infant baby boy with Bathsheba. And so maybe he's just resigned. Maybe he's just depressed and he's just given up. And he's not going to try and defend himself because he's tired of running. And he's tired of not being able to trust family. Because from David's perspective, man alive, there was a vote of no confidence from his father, from his brothers. He gets married to Saul's daughter, Michal. There's a vote of no confidence from Saul. Or rather, the more excellent David is, the better of a job he does. The more Saul wants to kill him, his first wife, Michal, is taken from him and given to Paltiel. When David flees for his life from the hitmen, from the murder squad that Saul is going to send after him, maybe David is just tired of running. He's tired of not being able to trust family, his own son in this case, openly conspiring in the gates, intercepting men who come from all over Israel to seek the king's judgment, that is David's judgment. Maybe David knows exactly what Absalom is doing and he knows where this is going and he's just given up and he's just tired of running. But then when there is no denying it anymore, because David's people are coming to him and saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, what does he do? He says, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us, from Absalom. So David knew. David saw this coming. He says, go quickly lest he overtake and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so now they're on the run. Now they're fleeing. And now the whole retinue of David's on the run from Absalom, as Absalom is coming into Jerusalem, they're fleeing the city. David and his whole retinue are just weeping as they go. And you've got to feel sorry for David even as he was told that this was going to happen, something like this was going to happen. And then, oh, by the way, it's foreboding that David leaves 10 concubines back to keep the house. More will come of that. They are concubines. They're not full-fledged wives, but now we know he's got 10 concubines. Besides those who were described as wives earlier on, who knows how many wives and concubines David has at this point. But he leaves 10 back to take care of the house, to maintain things. But he also does more than that. David leaves men in place. He asks certain select men to stay in Jerusalem. Because again, as I've said before, David's not stupid. He doesn't want this to result in the death of Absalom. And maybe that's another reason that he doesn't move against Absalom, because once you start to move against Absalom, then isn't that where it goes? I mean, if it hasn't risen to the level of open revolt just yet, people will say, wow, David, you know, we kind of wondered about you and Saul and you and Ishbosheth. We kind of wondered about all that, whether it was just propaganda that you spared Saul's life. We kind of wondered if maybe you arranged for the death of Abner when he came to you to give all Israel into your hands. We kind of wondered about Ishbosheth when he ended up being assassinated while he was taking a nap, his head brought to you, and then you just maybe covered it up by having the two captains of Ishbosheth killed, dismembered. Now you're moving against your own son. (sighs) So it's possible that David, having done what he did with Uriah, is trapped. Because once he does the thing that he does to Uriah, then all of a sudden people start going back over everything that they thought they knew about David, and they may come to the wrong conclusions about some of those situations. They may incorrectly revise their estimates of those earlier situations, and they may forget what it was that assured them that David's hands were clean, that his way was pure. It could be that David feels absolutely trapped One, because Nathan had told him, this is the word from Yahweh, this is the judgment of Yahweh against you, these things will happen, dissension will rise from your own house, your own wives will be taken by other men and laid with under the sun, which is to say in the open. And it could be that between that and a certain fatalism, this is just my fate. And also on the other hand, Just the consequences, right? The consequences of David's actions having trapped him to some extent. He doesn't move against Absalom until it's absolutely too late. It's totally a thing that Absalom is now moving against David. In any event, Absalom comes into the city and now Absalom is going to set himself up as king. But then here's an interesting thing to think about with regards to contrast between David and Absalom. David is always the one on the run, fleeing to this point from those who unjustly seek his life, Saul, namely. Absalom, when he flees initially after killing Amnon, it's because he murdered his brother. It's not because, oh, he's so excellent and David's so jealous. No, he murdered his brother in front of all of his other brothers. He murdered one brother in front of all of his other brothers under the guise of this being a party, a feast. We'll have a grand old time with the sheep shearing and some drinks afterwards. Oh, look, Amnon's drunk, and now he's dead, and everybody flees in terror. David, pursuing excellence, and then being persecuted for it, is brought to the kingship, first of Judah, then of Israel, after a long, hard road of... Leading well, leading by example, gathering men to him, similar to how Absalom does, but you have to really squint. You really have to not be paying close attention to the details and the why. In the case of Absalom, it's a conspiracy. In the case of David, it was David's on the run, and people know that David had done an excellent thing in killing Goliath and that David had not moved against Saul. Even with encouragement from people around him. Here's your chance. Kill him. No, I can't. I can't. I can't do it. He's the Lord's anointed. Absalom, by contrast, is consciously, strategically, very intentionally trying to woo all of Israel, similar to Abner anointing Ishbosheth to be king. Single handedly, Abner says, I'm going to make Ishbosheth son of Saul, king, all the while, you know, Abner is the power behind the throne. He's the one actually ruling over Israel because as soon as his support is taken away from ish a confrontation over a concubine of all things too, by the way, as soon as Abner pulls away his protection from ish everybody knows, uh-oh, ish is very afraid. And when Abner is murdered by Joab, well, All Israel knows Ish-bosheth's days are numbered. In the case of Absalom, Absalom is going to anoint himself king. He wants to make himself king. And he knows he's got to get the consent of the governed. He's got to win Israel over in order to make himself a king. And that's a component of it. But then David won the people of Israel over in a very different way. He was on the run, rather than killing Saul, he fled for his life. And then even while he was on the run, while he's being pursued, he has multiple opportunities. And people see that that's not the way he is. And they're drawn to that, plus his excellence, plus they know that the Lord is with him. But then, ooh, after the situation with Uriah, is the Lord still with David? So maybe that opens the door. You know, Absalom, on the one hand, is thinking, God is not with my father David anymore, similar to how people thought about ish when Abner was no longer in the picture. It was Abner protecting ish It's been God protecting and blessing David. And is God still protecting and blessing David? Abner, dead, God still alive, but then that business with Uriah. Did you hear Nathan went and confronted him about that? Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah, didn't Nathan tell David that There was going to be judgment against David's house, dissension within his own house. Yeah, that's right. That's what I heard too. So then even just a rumor of it can turn into an opportunistic, very ambitious, very ruthless character like Absalom saying, all right, let's get ready. Let's get a chariot and some horses. I need 50 men. Yeah, good looking men. Stout, tall, sober. They need to look strong. They need to look... Shiny. They'll run before me. If only, if only I were judge in the land. Every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. I would give them justice. It's not the end, right? This is the culmination of what's been building for years. It's not the end of the story, but it's a dark turn. And these sorts of things happen. And this is the world we live in. This is how people are. We should not be naive and we should not be ignorant of these things. In fact, I think the single biggest argument for why Christians have no excuse to be ignorant about these things, to be naive, to be simple-minded, to be confusing avoidance for innocence is that passages just like 2 Samuel chapter 15 are in our Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That doesn't mean you see what these guys do. These guys like Absalom What they do, and then you do likewise, because oh, well, that's you know, the real world. That's how it's done. No, it means you're as wise as serpents. Here Absalom is a snake in the grass, he's a tiger lurking in the tall grass. You're as wise as these guys, so that you can be protective of those who are innocent and those who are not as aware of their surroundings. You can guard your own heart so that you're not swept up in conspiracies like this. You don't go along with them ignorantly helping to feed and foment rebellion, not spreading false reports for one thing, not delaying true reports of trouble coming just because somebody said, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Literally the heading here, the first heading in 2 Samuel 15 is Absalom's conspiracy, right? This is a conspiracy. And if on the front end, before it actually, you know, Was sprung on everybody. If there were little rumors here and there and people were like, you know, I think Absalom's up to something, I think maybe we should warn David. In our day, some would say, oh, but that's a conspiracy theory. No, but there are such things as conspiracies. Men do conspire. (laughs) You know, that's a result of their sinful nature, selfish ambition, and vain conceit. Men do conspire, especially when they can't act. Openly, they have to build up strength. They have to put things in place. They have to wait for the right timing. Sometimes your theory may be close to the mark, but in our day, it's become too easy to say any allusion to a conspiracy is just silly. No, that doesn't happen. I think you've watched one too many movies based on a Tom Clancy novel. I don't think, no, no, no. Yes, actually. Yes, there are people who conspire, and you should know that, because otherwise it's really hard to protect innocent folk, like David does here. David says, let's get out of here. He doesn't say, let's wait and see. Let's wait until Absalom comes into the city. He knows, even though he's been trying to maybe deny it to himself, he knows the character of Absalom, that if there's a fight, and if... Jerusalem becomes the battleground. Absalom is the kind who might just as soon put the city to the sword to accomplish the same objective, the same end result, as he does get himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before. He'll just as soon send for Joab, his next door neighbor, to seek an audience with the king as he will when Joab's not coming in a timely manner he's not getting the results that he wants, set fire to Joab's barley fields. David understands exactly what will happen if they stick around. Death. They will be murdered. And anybody who tries to stop the killing of David by Absalom's men will also be killed. And so to protect those who are loyal to David, David and those who are loyal to him will flee. And David has some practice with that. It's not the first time he's been on the run from family, but it's still sad. You know, it's still an upsetting thing. It's still tragic. And yet, like I said, this is the real world. This is people. This is man's nature in a fallen world. Man's nature when man is in rebellion against God or is suffering the consequences of rebellion against God. Maybe it was a prior sin. It wasn't sin in this moment, but it was sin way back. You were neglecting what you should have been attending to or you attended to things which were not yours to attend to. And now here are the consequences. In our next episode, which will be, Lord willing, tomorrow, and will be subscriber only until December 1st, we'll talk about chapter 16 and we'll see where this business with Absalom goes. You should probably just go ahead and subscribe for 99 cents a month at Spotify. You can do that. And then you'll be able to listen to the subscriber-only content every third episode in the month as they are published. You should probably go do that now so you don't forget. But if you can't afford it, I understand. Bidenomics is working. And a dollar saved is a dollar earned. In any event, for now, we will put 2 Samuel chapter 15... On the Shelf, and I want to talk about something no less real that is also part of the world that we live in. I want to talk about marriage. Oh, I remember it like it was 17 years ago. (laughs) Uh, My wife and I today have been married for 17 years. In 17 years' time, we have lived in Ohio for five years of our marriage, Montana for seven years of our marriage, and Colorado for four years and counting. In that span of time, across three states, we've had nine children, and we've had a lot of ups and downs. We have been poor, and we've been fairly well off. Actually, when we moved from Ohio to Montana, we went from being on public assistance to me all of a sudden making six figures and us being able to afford things and us being able to get out of debt and us being able to buy a house and a big 12 passenger family van and being able to help other of our family, extended family. We have seen ups and downs moving to Colorado on the opportunity. work for a midstream oil and gas company here in Northeastern Colorado, right after a major knee surgery for my wife, right before COVID, the passing away of my mother-in-law, both of my grandmothers, a miscarriage and an ectopic pregnancy. Within the span of a year, very tough stuff, very difficult things for us personally, all in the midst of a lot of very difficult things for the whole world. And it has not always been easy. I wouldn't even say it's always been pleasant. There have been, over the course of 17 years, a lot of times where I've been very upset with her, she's been very upset with me, we've been very upset with each other. There have been days where we just didn't really want to talk to each other. There have been late nights where we were getting nowhere, arguing, disagreeing, upset, Trying to make sense of it. There have been stresses of extended family on her side, on my side, in laws, both directions. What do we do with them? There have been difficult church situations. There have been difficult social situations. There have been difficult health situations and financial situations. But at the same time, we've laughed. I've cracked a timely joke. And she's given me that look like, you think you're funny. I think you're cute, but that is not funny. And then despite herself trying to not, though she does, she does laugh. She does chuckle. There have been times where I am just at my wits end and I go to her and I ask her for advice and I say, what do you think about this? And then she gives me a very succinct reframing of the situation or what I was thinking about saying or I was thinking about doing. and. It's like a key in a lock, and now all of a sudden, new possibilities open up. There have been times where I've been extraordinarily discouraged, and she has said, I love you, and you should keep trying, and it's okay. We'll get through this. This too shall pass. She said to me, I've said to her, there have been times where she has said, thank you for being patient with me. I'm so thankful for you. There have been times where parenting our children We have not agreed as to what the best decision was. And yet, on the other hand, the very fact that we have such things to figure out in the first place is an extraordinary blessing. There have been times where it was like, wow, here's this windfall. What do we do with it? Here's this great opportunity. Wouldn't that be fun? Let's go do it. Yeah, let's get that. I think we would all enjoy that. Yeah, let's have so-and-so over. Let's have this family over. Oh, yeah, they invited us to their place. Oh, wasn't that so nice? We go with our family and spend time with their family. There have been other times where we've said, wow, we are just having no fun with this or that person. These people are really proving difficult. And what will we do about it? What will we say about it? But then again, in the midst of all of that, you have to appreciate that two are better than one. And it takes me back to think 17 years ago, when Lauren and I said I do, even just the day of our wedding, was a mixture because life is like that. It was right about finals time, and we were both attending Cedarville University. She was pursuing nursing, I was pursuing her, <laughs> and uh I didn't know what I wanted to major in. In a parallel dimension, if I had not been so distracted by dysfunctional family dynamics in my family of origin, I probably would have pursued engineering or I would have pursued an English major or I would have pursued history as a major. There were so many things I was interested in, but then I wasn't focused enough to be able to just pick one. And also I wasn't sold on going to college, going to university at all for anything, in part because of how expensive it was. And I didn't have that money. and My parents clearly didn't have that money. And I thought, well, why don't I just work? Why don't we just get married and I'll just work and I'll just do my best to provide for us and the Lord will provide for us. And I'll do my best to protect you and to love you and to take care of you and to make you happy. And the Lord will protect us and take care of us and make us happy. And if I back up a little bit before I was getting married, before I was talking about getting married, if I go back and it's good to go back and to remember these things and to tell people who don't know these things. If I go back, I remember the very first day I met my now wife of 17 years. It was a Sunday school class at First Baptist Church of Hillsboro, Ohio. And my dad was taking my younger brother and I, just the three of us, because my parents were divorced. And we had heard that the pastor of this church Was also divorced. And so the thought process on my mother's part was well, maybe that church won't treat our family like we're pariahs, like we need to be kept at arm's length over the divorce thing. You know, some churches might, but then maybe this church won't. Some churches had said, you know, what needs to happen is you guys need to be reconciled. And my mother wouldn't hear of that. My dad actually wanted to be reconciled for a long, long time. My mother wouldn't hear of it. She's the one who actually divorced him. But here we were. We were at a church where the pastor himself was divorced. His wife had divorced him too. Go figure. Because she didn't want to be a pastor's wife, I found out eventually. But that first Sunday, I'm sitting there in Sunday school. I'm in high school, either a freshman or a sophomore at that point. And we were broken out into groups of three. And each of us were given... a Passage of scripture. And then we were challenged to come up with a way we could illustrate that passage to the congregation the next Sunday with a skit, perhaps, possibly. For instance, they loved skits back then, and they loved skits in that church in particular. Let's come up with a dramatic portrayal of what's being talked about here. Make it into a game. Make it fun. Make it funny. You know, everything has to be entertaining. Everything has to be fun. And so I'm sitting there with my now wife, Lauren, and her childhood friend from little on up, Philip Langefeld, who became my friend, one of my friends in high school that I hung out with the most, him and his family. But I'm sitting there and we're talking through this passage. I don't remember what the passage was anymore. But then Lauren put forward the idea that, well, we could make it into a skit because, you know, apparently that was a thing they did all the time. And I was like, well, I could just not be here next Sunday. Hmm? I do not want to do a skit. That does not sound like fun. (laughs) And especially being totally brand new in this church. And I'll never forget, Lauren looked me dead in the eyes and she said, well, then I'll cry, right? And she was being dramatic and she was being facetious. But we didn't end up going back to that church the next Sunday for whatever reason. And I remember feeling bad, like, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't have joked that we wouldn't be back next Sunday. Maybe she's crying. You know, what if she's crying right now? And I feel like I'm responsible for that. You know, and and funny enough, I asked her years later, you know, did you cry? She was like, I don't even remember this at all. I'm like, okay, well, that answers that. Okay. All right. But seriously, we did go back eventually. And then we started going to that church regularly, attending that church. And I got very involved with the youth in that church. And then they called youth pastor and his wife who were coming out of Assemblies of God churches, but they led a, hosted a non-denominational Bible study in their home for youth in the community. Anybody who wanted to come, lots of kids came, dozens and dozens of kids came. And so First Baptist Church of Hillsboro, Ohio adopted Tim and Carrie Crafton and asked them to come and be youth pastors or Tim to be youth pastor, I should say, at First Baptist. And then the church bought the little house next door and fixed it up to be a youth house where kids could come in the afternoons, Monday through Friday, after school. On Wednesday, they could just stay until it was time for Bible study in the evening. And we had halo and we had ping pong and we had a basketball hoop in the parking lot and snacks and card games and just sitting around and talking. And it was a place to hang out. And over the course of the next couple of years, Lauren and I just seemed to never really quite get along. Every time we were both in the same space, the same room, there was this static and we would not get along. And I've told this story before, but you know, again, it bears remembering, it bears thinking back on, there was static and I would ask how she was and she would say, I'm fine. And she clearly wasn't because she had health issues back then, by the way. And I knew that. I knew she had health issues. And she looked like she wasn't fine. She looked like she was in pain. She was uncomfortable. She was upset about something. And so I would press and I would say, well, no, how are you really? And in hindsight, I realized I was a bit extra and I was immature and I was a bit ridiculous. There were a lot of girls who thought that I was hot stuff and uh, she was not one of them, apparently, (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of bothered me that she was not okay. And I kind of wanted to know, how are you really? But, you know, to be fair, she wasn't being entirely honest and I wasn't being entirely honest. Neither of us were. It's just she was saying I'm fine when she wasn't fine. And I was being the life of the party with all kinds of clever things to say all the time, insightful things, funny things to say all the time. I was in the middle of everything with every little group just loving it, just eating it all up. You know, with the sporty types, I'm going to play the sports. With the nerds, I'm going to nerd out about computers and Star Wars and what have you. With the nerdy theological types, I was going to debate theology. But I wasn't being sober-minded. And I think that really got on her nerves. She thought I was arrogant, and maybe I was just being fake- On the one hand, and on the other hand, I really did have more confidence than she did. And I had more confidence than a lot of those kids did, in part because I had been homeschooled, in part because I was trying to compensate for the fact that I had been homeschooled and I was expecting to be teased. I was expecting to get written off by a number of them. And then when it turned out that actually I was pretty popular, I was pretty well liked, I ate it up and I made too much of it. And I'll tell you what the turning point was. For me, there was a camp in the summers for kids with special needs called Camp Dovetail. Camp with a K, you know, special needs. We can't spell camp, apparently. Uh, camp Dovetail, this great operation hosted on the banks of Rocky Fork Lake, Rocky Fork State Park, not too far from Hillsboro. And Lauren had been volunteering at this camp for a number of years. And she was an assistant group leader and they needed more volunteers. And so she approached our youth group, our Bible study, one-way Bible study, and asked if anybody would be willing to volunteer, any of us youth, because the way that it worked was each camper with special needs would be paired with a volunteer who would stay with them the whole week and do all the activities with them. And they would know their special needs and be there to help them. You know, if they needed to take medicine or if they needed cleaned up, if they needed help getting dressed, if they needed help going and using the restroom, if they needed help with medical emergencies, identifying, you know, something coming on. If they just needed the continuity of a person so they didn't get lost in the shuffle, they needed a volunteer for every camper. And so she opened this up to everybody, and a whole bunch of us did. Most of the youth group volunteered and we went to meetings on a weekly basis for months ahead of Camp Week. And I'll just boil it down to this. I watched the way Lauren was with campers the week of camp and how kind she was, how patient she was, how she looked at them, how she talked to them. She treated them with kindness and dignity and love. And I remember seeing that and I remember being so impressed. I remember loving her for it. And loving her in a different way, not in a, wow, isn't she cute sort of a way. Not like, wow, she's so sexy, you know, not that sort of a way, but in a, wow, she is so beautiful in terms of character, in terms of how she relates to the least of these. To that point, for me, those kids were the least of these. You know, poor people, sure, yeah, some people are poor, that's a thing, but kids who were born not being able to do certain things like we just take for granted most of us, most of the time, (sighs) being written off, being excluded, being teased in some cases, harassed in some cases, maybe being neglected in some cases or abused in some cases because family and friends just couldn't even. Here they were, and if Lauren was nearby, they were being loved on, they were being treated kindly and sweetly. And maybe a part of me in hindsight thought, wow, she can be that kind and that (laughs) sweet to them. You know, if she were to see the real me, if she were to get to know the real me, how I feel about myself, she would be kind towards me too. And she wouldn't just laugh at me. And so fast forward, you know, camp came and went. We had a great time and it was good. And it was an eye-opening experience, uh, a very enriching experience, a very maturing week for me. On the other end of that, a friend of mine named Dennis, who was a year ahead of me in high school, who was very smart, but also very awkward, another homeschooled kid, very serious, very quiet, but very academic, very controlled. He and I went to go pick up some pizzas for youth group. And while we're out and about, he must have picked up on some signals that I was sending that I didn't realize I was sending at all. He's like, yeah, you know, you've been different ever since you came back from that week of Camp Dovetail, which he didn't go to, but I do believe his younger brother did. I I think so. I, I could be wrong, but I just remember him commenting that I seemed different after that week, and he was wondering, did something happen? And in hindsight, some things like this make more sense, come into clearer focus. He was very interested in Lauren. In fact, he was infatuated. He was crushing like big time, you know, as much as a quiet, nerdy, academic, very controlled, very restrained, homeschooled kid can uh, crush on a girl. He had a bad, a bad case of the butterflies with regards to her. And that's really what he was getting at was, did something happen between you and Lauren? Are you interested in her? And I said, well, I don't know if anything happened per se. I'm just really impressed with how she related to those kids. I just, I don't know. Like I've never seen that kind of patience. And I remember him asking, are you interested in her? And me being somewhat surprised to find myself saying yes. And I say somewhat surprised because I hadn't really thought about it seriously. And then it's like, well, yeah, I, I guess I am. And he says, well, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it different different friends, two different people in a different time. One of us might have said to the other, Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, you you should ask her out. You should. I think, I think you guys would go well together. But both of us just kind of silently, quietly made a mental note that, oh, okay. All right, all right. You know, so that's how it is, I guess. But then in due time, over the course of the next weeks, I don't remember how many weeks, I asked her out. And I did so in the most early 2000s, awkward homeschooled kid way. I asked over Yahoo Instant Messenger. Yes, I know. I'm not proud of it, but it was probably easier for her too, because she was a bit shy. Is <laughs> still a bit shy. She doesn't like talking on the phone, and it would have been awkward for her to tell me what she ended up telling me, which was, actually, Dennis already asked me out earlier. And I said yes. And so there I was. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, then, hmm. Those who hesitate are lost. Those who hesitate must wait. And what surprised me in the moment, particularly as I was of that age where a young man notices young ladies and there were a number, like I say, there were a number of young ladies who noticed me and had crushes on me and thought I was really cute and all that. And at the same time, there were a few that, by the way, working at the YMCA, being a fitness instructor and working in the fitness center, I would see come in and work out. There were a few that I was just like, wow, she is gorgeous. She's a very beautiful young lady and I would love to ask her out, but I don't have the guts. You know, there were a few like that, but it was a very different sort of attraction, right? It was a, it was an attraction not based on anything I had observed really of their substance or their character or how they related to people. It wasn't based on how they related to me or other people. It was just purely aesthetic. It was just purely like, wow, she has a beautiful face and really nice hair and a nice figure. And when she walks into the room, I feel a little lightheaded, you know, like that sort of a thing. And if I had asked any of those gals out, you know, the girls who would come in, to work out at the YMCA when I was working or some of the girls that took piano lessons from my mom and they would come over to the house or they'd be at piano parties, piano recitals, and I would kind of make a conversation a little bit or, you know, linger if I was walking by the entrance to my mother's piano studio and they were having a lesson, you know, I'd linger just a little bit to kind of like glance in. If I had asked any of those girls out and then been told, no, somebody else asked me out, somebody else, you know, a friend of yours asked me out just earlier today. And I said, yes, that would have been really discouraging. And I would have been frustrated about it. And I would have been mildly irritated at my friend, especially if we'd had a conversation while picking up pizza. But I was surprised. I was really surprised at how not upset, I mean, disappointed. Yeah. But I wasn't upset because I remember this vividly. I thought to myself, and was surprised to find myself thinking this way, you know what, Dennis is a good guy, and if Dennis is who the Lord has for her, then it'll work out, and that's for the best. And if the Lord does not have Dennis for her, and she is not for him, then it won't work out, and I'm sure the Lord will see to what is for the best for all parties concerned. I'm sure that the Lord will lead and guide us and see that his purposes are accomplished. Fast forward, they dated for a few months. He went off to Cedarville University. He graduated high school and went off to Cedarville University. And Lauren and I were in our senior year of high school still. I was taking classes from Southern State Community College for dual credit. Lauren was still attending Hillsborough High and also taking a few classes here and there over the summer, at least. And there was still the static, right? Because we're still going to youth group, we're still going to Bible study. Her boyfriend, my friend Dennis, had gone off to college, and so she would kind of see him when he would come back home to visit with his family, they'd watch a movie here and there, go out for dinner. But there was this static between Lauren and I, and I thought, well, okay, you know what, maybe she and I will not date, but then I should probably just work on my relationship with the Lord. I should probably recalibrate my thinking with regards to what does God want for me in life? What is my purpose? What is my delos? What is my calling? What is my vocation in life? What does God want me to be about? How can I serve God with my life? I should probably think about that my senior year of high school and ask God and ask God for wisdom and ask God for direction. I had all these people saying, oh, you're going to go to college, right? You have to go to college. If you don't go to college, you'll never amount to anything. What are you, what are you going to study? What are you going to major in? You know, Because like I said, I was a smart, intelligent, well-spoken, confident young man. I was a popular young man. That is up until what happened with my mother happened, where uh, she basically kicked me out and sent me to live with my dad. And that's a long story that I won't get into in this episode any more than just to say I intervened as she was in a very dark place and was raging against my brother. I intervened and stepped between them, to protect my brother. And I told her she needed to calm down. And all of a sudden I was being thrown out of the house. She was calling my dad and telling him to come pick me up. She had bluffed about that a number of times before. And finally I just said, okay, I can't do this anymore. And next thing I know I'm living 15, 20 minutes away from everybody that I'm friends with, from my job, from my brother, from my friends, from my work. I mean, everything, right? 20 minutes, 15 minutes away, doesn't seem like so far away after having moved back to Montana, living there for seven years where everything is at least an hour away. It seems like, you know, you measure in hours, not in minutes, how far of a drive you'll have to drive a lot of times. But at the time, especially for, you know, a high schooler with friends who were also high schoolers, that was far enough away. It turned out to have a lot of my friends just not really be a part of my life so much. And then besides that, my mom was contacting various of my friends and then telling her side of the story, which was decidedly unflattering with regards to me, in reference to me. And all most people knew was that something had happened. And all of a sudden, my name was Mud. And all of a sudden, I went from being this confident, outgoing, popular, in the middle of everything, in the middle of everybody, I can conquer the world, young man, to Where are all my friends? And I've got people asking, where are you going to go to college? And I'm like, you know what? I don't even know if I want to go to college because it's expensive. And I've got a lot of things on my plate right now to figure out as far as my family, family of origin. Living with my dad was very, very different than living with my mom. My mom had let my brother and I have very free reign with computer games, video games, watching movies, watching TV listen to music. I mean, within bounds, she was very protective, overprotective actually, when it came to us going anywhere, you know, buzzing around town. She wanted to know where we were at all times, who we were with. But I go and live with my dad. And now all of a sudden going and hanging out with my friends, takes a lot more planning. If they even want to hang out with me, if it's not awkward now, because it's like, well, Hey, what's going on with your mom and you, if they'll even listen if they've already talked with her or she rather talked with them and gave them her side of it, which was basically that I was, you know, a bad seed and rebellious. And so I'm like, well, okay, I need to figure out (laughs) what my purpose in life is. Where's my life going? And really God was my only comfort for a span of time for a year or more. And it was just drama and Hurt and pain and confusion in most every other direction. Uncertainty. Where do I stand with this person or that person or this person? Now this person treats me different. Now this person's like not wanting to talk to me or when they do, it's not fun like it was and it's not free and easy like it was. Now it's strained. And so maybe that's part of why when there was the static between Lauren and I, it bothered me and I'm like, hey, we should talk. Can we talk? Can we get together and meet face to face? Because I feel like every time I'm at Bible study, or we're at youth group, or we're at church together, or we're just even around each other at some event that we're both at, I I feel like there's some awkwardness. Can we get together and talk? And so we did. We got together at Liberty Park on the outskirts of Hillsborough, and we sat by the river, just the two of us, and we talked about, okay, what's the deal? What's the issue here? Why is there this tension? Why is there this unpleasantness. You know what she told me? She said, I don't like that when I tell you I'm fine, you ask me how I'm doing. And I say, I'm fine. I don't like that. You just keep pushing. I don't like that. And I'm like, really? That's what it is. You know, and come to find out over the years of, you know, being married, 17 years of being married. And we did date for a couple of years as well, besides knowing each other for a number of years before that. But over the years we've talked about it a number of times and now we think in hindsight that that's kind of funny that that went down the way that it did. You know, she thought I was arrogant, she thought I was superficial and fake and she was kind of jealous of how freely I gave my opinions and communicated. She was very shy, she didn't like to open up and talk too much, say how she was doing and then here I am and I'm just very transparent. You know, here's what I think about this and here's how I feel about that and hey, let's jump in and let's do this and do that and do the other thing and Part of it was she was jealous, and I think also, if I'm honest, part of it was that it was not entirely genuine on my part. And part of how I know that is, by contrast, in hindsight, once Lauren and I were able to talk through some of what was bothering us as far as my family of origin, her family of origin, how her home life was, how my home life was, what was going on with school or with work or various other situations, health issues, anxiety, depression, As we started talking through that and trying to be more honest with each other, I realized that I didn't have honest relationships like that with everybody, nor do I think that it's reasonable to have those kinds of honest, transparent relationships with everybody. I don't think that's a good idea. If you try to, if you think you should, then I think you'll be very disappointed. Guard your heart. Above all things, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Your heart affects everything that you do. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But then that is to say, you should have some measure of wariness and not just tell everybody everything because some people, they're going to be careless with the information. They're going to be apathetic. They're going to treat you like it's a waste of time, like you're a waste of time. They're going to be unpleasant. They're going to use that information against you in malicious ways, in hurtful ways, in cruel ways. Most people, they're just careless and they just whatever. And you'll be disappointed if you were expecting a lot of consideration. But then Some people, a very select few with each of us, we should. It's good for us to open ourselves up to. And I'm glad that I did open myself up and that I was honest with Lauren. Because what ended up happening as I was sharing with her and she's sharing with me what's bothering us in life and why we have this conflict, you know, this static, this friction, as we were honest about that, it turned out that She became my nearest and dearest friend to the point that when over the course of the coming weeks and months, she ended up breaking up with her then boyfriend, Dennis, and then a period of weeks or months after that, when she told me that she kept thinking about me and she believed that the Lord had put it on her heart to tell me that, to confide that in me as well, and to be honest with me about it, honestly, in... In all sincerity, I had so resigned myself to us just having a really good friendship. And I was fully convinced, fully persuaded in my own mind that we just had a really, really good friendship that I was like, you know, I really value our friendship. I friend zoned her, uh, actually. And she was, you know, hurt by that or disappointed or very confused. Like, why God, you know, why God did you, (laughs) as she believed, why did you, Want me to tell Garrett, why did you tell me to tell Garrett about my feelings for him that I kept thinking about him if he wasn't going to reciprocate? <laughs> you know What was the point of that? But, you know, people kept asking us, actually, right about that time, because Lauren and I, we would go for a walk before youth group instead of me just hanging out with this group to play Halo or this group to play basketball or this group to play ping pong or this group to talk about nerdy things, I started to prefer more and more just going on a nice long walk with Lauren and to talk through what was going on in life. It just felt like that was a very healthy thing for me and for her. And so then people start asking, are you two dating? Are Are you guys a thing? And both of us were like, no, 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 no. Why would you ask? You know, we just go on these long walks together, just the two of us privately talking about our feelings. You know, why would you think <laughs> Why would you think they were dating, and again, you know, in hindsight, it's like well of course, right? Everybody else was seeing what I was not seeing, I was in denial about it, maybe perhaps, but all of that is to say that the more people asked and the more I reflected on my interest in Lauren, how highly I valued her friendship, and this question of what did God have for me in life, what was my telos, what was my purpose, what was my calling what was my vocation what was i supposed to be about the more i started to reevaluate and reassess well am i just saying no am i saying no because i'm closed off to this and is that right you know should i be actually asking god specifically about what his will is for me and lauren and so lauren and i we did talk about it we said okay let's pray about this right let's pray about it and let's talk about it and let's give it a little bit of time and let's come to a, a determination here. Let's listen, let's pray and ask God for wisdom and let's listen and believe and not doubt that God will give us some wisdom here. And, you know, it's interesting. There was a an elderly, single black woman, you know, a strong black woman uh, who attended First Baptist Church of Hillsboro, Ohio. Ruth Thurman was her name. She lived alone. And Lauren, just like she did with Camp Dovetail, You know, you find out quietly in passing that she's been volunteering for years with this camp for kids with disabilities and they need volunteers. And that's the only reason she's letting you know now is because she's asking, she's going outside of her comfort zone to ask you to join the volunteer effort. Well, very similarly, you know, come to find out Lauren would go and visit elderly ladies who were widows or they had just never gotten married like Ruth Thurman had never gotten married. I don't believe Lauren would just visit them, you know, maybe once a week, every few weeks, just stop in, see how how they were, check in on them, sit and talk with them, pray with them. And so Lauren and I are out and about we're walking around town. She's like, Hey, let's check in on Ruth Thurman. And so we did right. We, we checked in on Ruth Thurman and here's this, you know, if, if you remember, if you watched The Matrix, like The Oracle, <laughs> you know, this mysterious black woman in the story who Neo goes to, and he's supposedly going to get all the answers from her, and then she's speaking in riddles and you know has this knowing smile as she's listening to him, asking him questions, or he's asking her questions. Ruth Thurman was like that. Honestly, and I don't think she had ever seen The Matrix. So she wasn't trying to be like the oracle from The Matrix, but then she just was, right? You know, she was that sort of a, a gal. And she was a bit charismatic, I'll admit, a bit of a Pentecostal type, speaking in tongues and getting words from the Lord and seeing visions and having dreams and all that kind of a thing. She put stock in all of that. But we stopped in and we visited with her and chatted with her. And she said something to the effect, that the Lord had plans for Lauren and I. And we hadn't told her, you know, hey, we're thinking about this question. We've been praying about this question. We've been asking God for wisdom with regards to whether we should, you know, be an item. And I'll be honest to another influence here. And in hindsight, I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> should I admit this? Uh, Joshua Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. You know, that was really popular back then. And I had read that book and I thought, well, you know, I think he makes some good points. Like, why do we do the dating thing? Maybe we're too casual about this. Maybe we treat dating like it's entertainment. And we're just, you know, so many bees flitting from flower to flower to flower, and that's not seeming to work for the older generations. who have been doing that for a few generations now since the invention of the automobile. You know, maybe the the courtship model was a better model. Maybe that was a better idea. And maybe actually you shouldn't enter into a so-called dating relationship until you actually have an intention of pursuing this to assess whether you should get married. And so in my mind, I'm approaching this very seriously, not like we're getting engaged, but like this is more like courtship and less like conventional dating. You know, I had, I'd had one girlfriend prior to Lauren and it was just kind of an accidental thing. Like a friend of mine who was dating a gal, Philip Langefeld, actually speaking of Philip Philip Langefeld had asked me out of the blue, hey, do you want to come over and watch The Lord of the Rings? And it just so happened it was him and his girlfriend. And Phil had invited Stephanie Elliott, her maiden name Elliott. Now she's married and she's got a different last name. But all of a sudden it was a double date. And I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. And it was, you know, it was fun, right? It was fun and it was flirty. And then it was like, oh, well, do you want to just date? You know, sure, you know, I don't have anything going on. And it didn't work out because we did not run in the same circles and gradually more and more, she got on on my nerves more and more and I got on her nerves more and more, I think. And so we just agreed at a certain point. Yeah. When we go to things and we don't at all want to be together, spending time together, like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's just time to call it and say, this is not a thing. Like we're not a thing really. You know, and so I, I'd had that experience. One experience having a girlfriend, we didn't even ever hold hands. And I didn't want that again, actually, where you just kind of accidentally fall into it because your friend sets you up and, you know, it's expected. You're going to have a girlfriend. You're going to have a boyfriend, ladies. You're going to have a girlfriend, guys. Check that box. Other people will be like, oh yeah, cool. You know, and so then Ruth Thurman, she says this, thing about, you know, the Lord has plans for you. And we came away from that. You know, didn't immediately just get up and leave, but, you know, finished out the time talking with, praying with Ruth and left. And Lauren and I are walking around town some more. And I just couldn't get over that. That that seemed like uh, exactly the sort of an answer to the prayer I'd been praying. I'd, I'd been asking God for wisdom. And I believed that God would give us an answer and give me an answer in particular. I believed and I didn't doubt that God would give an answer. And so then I'm like, well, you know, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And I did. And he says, you must believe and not doubt. And I believe and I don't want to doubt. And I remember sitting on Lauren's front porch because, you know, the sun had started to go down. I walked her home, as you should, men, you know, if you go for a walk with a lady and it's starting to get dark, you should always walk them home, make sure they get in to their house safely. Maybe leave them there, you know, like <laughs> see them to the door, make sure they get in safely. And then you go back to your house, you go back to your home. Otherwise you might get into trouble. Um, but you know, she went into the house to get a sweatshirt or something cause it was getting cool. And I sat out on the front porch and the moon was starting to come up and you know, I'm a talker, right? That's why I have this podcast. My name is Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. But I remember praying and asking God for guidance, for his will, for wisdom, for insight, for an answer, what to do here. And Lauren came out of her house with a sweatshirt after retrieving it. But before she did, I was just so sure that God had spoken to me through his Holy Spirit in me to say, when she comes back out, just be quiet, just look, just listen. And she comes back out and she sits on the front steps of her parents' porch. And I'm sitting there and, you know, typically this would be the part where I just start talking again, right? And I just start talking and keep talking and talk, 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 talk about everything. And instead I thought, okay, well, I, you know, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. And so I should believe. And I should just do what I believe the Lord has told me to do. And so I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to listen. And I'm just going to observe. And if you know my wife, you know that that is a surefire way to make her very uncomfortable. When people are just observing her and listening to her, she gets to feeling very self-conscious. She doesn't like a whole bunch of people paying attention to her. Just, she's just very shy, right? She's just very shy, and she'll get through it. She'll get over it, uh, you know, for the sake of the other person, you know, for a good cause. But in this case, she comes out, and she sits down, and she's like, "What?" And I kid you not, and I'm not trying to make up super spiritual sounding stories because there's so much about this that you'll think less of me for, and I know that on the front end. But then it is what it is, and this is our story, and so I'm just going to tell it. Uh, and I'm sitting there on the front porch, and I. I'm not talking and I'm not distracted by filling the air with whatever my opinions and feelings are, or my observations are, or my jokes, my whatever. And I'm not distracted by other things. And it, it was almost as though it, it, it was almost as though I had blinders on. I I don't know any other way to put it. I you know I'm usually pretty good with the words thing, but then you know it was it was almost like I had not really truly seen Lauren. And it was almost as though I had not understood. I hadn't realized how beautiful she was. And then in that moment, I saw for the first time, wow, she's really beautiful. I I don't just have a appreciation for her character. And I don't just have a appreciation for the fact that you know, we can have these honest conversations and I don't have anybody else I can talk with like this. You know, all that was reason enough for me to consider, okay, well, maybe we should Ask God what he wants us to do in relation to each other, you know, the future. Yeah, I that was enough for me to go on that there was a character quality to her that I loved and I admired. And there was an aspect to our relationship that I so highly valued and needed. But then in that moment, I saw that she was beautiful. And I I, I don't even know how to describe what that Meant for me. I mean, it just, it was like a shift. You know, insofar as over the course of 17 years of marriage, at various times I've been discouraged, and Lauren has given me just enough encouragement, just enough to say, All right, I'm going to try again. I'm going to keep trying. I'm not going to give up. You know, at various times I've just been at a loss, like, How do I handle this? How do I deal with this situation? How do I talk to this person? I've been trying to talk to this person, and I, I, I think I'm not making any sense. You know, she's just given me enough insight, enough reframing to where it's like a key going into a lock and then click, you know, you turn it and click. And now you can open up (laughs) new possibilities. You know, you, you get through that door and now you're on the other side, whatever was on the other side of that door. Now that locked door is open to you. It was as though God himself had given me a key to unlocking what had been a locked door for me. And now all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, and, and all of that is to say, people thought I was crazy. I, really people thought I was crazy and I would never amount to anything. And who knows? I mean, the, <laughs> look to the end. We'll see. Um, You know, I, I'm not going to brag. I'm not going to boast and say, you know, I sure showed all of them, you know, I've really, really just turned the world upside down. I'm not here to say that. But I am going to say I have exceeded most of the people's expectations that were communicated when Lauren and I announced in the next year from that point or the next year and a half or whatever it was. I think it was a year from that point. I've exceeded the expectations that people had for what I would make of life and how hard I was willing to work to provide, to protect, to become a mature young man. And that is to say, there was a lot of opposition to when we announced that we intended to get married. Lauren was at Cedarville. She was pursuing nursing and everybody was telling her, it seemed like, no, you should stay in school. You should finish your 4 year degree. And if he's not willing to wait for you, well, then dump him. You've got all these options. You're a beautiful young lady. You're pursuing a nursing degree. Date some young man who comes from an intact family, where his parents are still married, not a broken home like Garrett does. Date some young man who is not voicing his opinions so readily and getting himself into trouble. You know, date some young man who is playing by the rules and is looking like he's slated for success. You know, date for fun. That's the kind of advice that she was getting. Just date, date around. You know, there's lots of fish in the sea, You don't need to be serious right now about anything except for your college education. And I'll spare you the gory details for now. You know, in future, I I can tell more of the story, of course. And I'll put a lot of this material into my book, as you'll find when that comes out, Lord willing, by the end of the year. And this is why we got married. You'll see. But the short version is all I really, really had to go on was that I believed this was the Lord's will. I had prayed and asked God for wisdom. I'd cried out to God in a very low place, socially, mentally, emotionally. And I believed wholeheartedly that God had answered my prayers and had brought Lorne and I together and that God's purpose was for Lorne and I to marry and to spend the rest of our lives together. And consequently, when I would encounter opposition, And I would explain that to people who professed Christian faith, who were supposedly giving godly counsel. When I would express that to them, it blew me away how dismissive most were. Many would just respond with silence, but others were insulting and openly dismissive. And then when they realized they weren't getting anywhere with me, they would just go back to Laura and say, yeah. It's not too late. You know, even at Lauren's bridal shower, one guy in our church at the time came up to her and said, you know, it's not too late to change your mind. And what's amazing is I can easily see how people came to that conclusion now. In hindsight, looking back, looking at pictures of me from when I was much younger, looking at the economic situation in our country at that time, looking at my prospects, looking at how I was presenting myself. Yeah, sure. Sure, I I concede. I did not look like a winner. I didn't probably look like I was going to be good for Lauren. You can ask her whether I was and have been and am good for her. But then here's the thing. Sometimes that's how God works. And that's one of the things that we find when we read his word. Sometimes that's how God works is he brings a man to prominence from having been completely written off by everybody. David, not even present initially when Samuel comes to anoint the next king over Israel. His dad sends him out to take care of the sheep. David, when he brings food to his brothers as they're camped in the Valley of Elah over against the Philistines, when David goes to talk to Saul about fighting Goliath, David's own brothers completely write him off. Saul tries to shoot him down in very crafty ways. When David wins, not being wealthy, not being of any account in and of himself, except that he fought Goliath and won. Saul's way of relating to him, the way that other prominent men in Israel related to David, when David would show up in their territory, they would go to Saul and say, hey, he's over here, you can come get him. Yeah, that... All of that, even Saul fleeing to the king of the Philistines, all of it is a buildup we know in hindsight to him becoming king over Israel. And that doesn't mean that everything is smooth sailing as we're seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But it is to say that sometimes the Lord works in mysterious ways, even perhaps all the more to show his power and his wisdom and his strength and his goodness and his grace Blessing a man despite a dysfunctional family of origin, despite economic challenges, despite political instability, despite not having the advantages of other men, not having the title, not having the credentials, not having the power, not having the position, not having the property, not having the public opinion in his favor. Sometimes God works all the more to show that this is God who did this thing in those circumstances so that no one may boast before God. And interestingly, counterintuitively, sometimes an Absalom being so handsome, being the most handsome man in the whole kingdom, having a chariot, oh, he's got a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, and he gets up early. I mean, he's a go-getter. He gets up early, he waits in the city gates, he intercepts men on their way to talk with the king who's clearly, you know, not got this. And he steals the whole country's hearts away. And for what? And what sort of a man is he? Sometimes what steals the hearts of the people away is all of what God opposes. It's pride. It's vanity. It's foolishness. If it can't get its way by impressing you with a show of wealth, a show of beauty, a show of strength, well, then it might just terrorize you and get what it wants that way, and then you realize what a trap you fell into because you were judging by appearances, just like God told Samuel not to do when he went to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Don't look at his outward appearance, for God does not judge as man judges. God does not look at the outer appearance. God looks at the inner man of the heart. Don't look at him. I've rejected him. The man who will be king over Israel is not here. Is this all your sons, Jesse? Well, there is one more, but we didn't figure it was worth pulling him away from his shepherding duties. Send for him. We will not sit down until he gets here. Consistently, that's how God works. That's how God operates again and again. If God's character hasn't changed, and in fact, the purpose that God has, the character of his promises, the character of his purposes cannot change, it's unchangeable. When that's the case, then we should actually be more surprised if all of the sudden, in our day, God especially favored when you just do what everybody takes for granted is going to result in so-called success. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's always been the case. It always will be the case. And so in closing here, because I should go, speaking of 17 years of marriage, our oldest son, who is 16, going on 17. He'll be 17. And, uh, oh, by the way, that's about eight months away, you know, because he was born about eight months from when Lauren and I got married. Not to embarrass anybody, but he was conceived on our wedding night. We're pretty sure, pretty confident. I have to take our oldest son to a wrestling scrimmage here in Greeley. He was born in Dayton, Ohio, but here we are. We're... How many hundreds of miles away now living here? Because God has brought us here. God has prospered us. God has protected us. God has provided for us. Now he gets to go wrestle, but I have to get him to where he's going to wrestle. Let me just sum up with this. 17 years of marriage, I have never had it all figured out. I have never been primarily the one providing for my family. Even when it was just Lauren and I, I have never been primarily the one Protecting my family, even when it was just Lauren and I. And the more and more children we have, the more I am sobered by the fact that it is much more than I am capable of handling all on my own. It's not like I've got this all in hand. And then every now and then God comes in with the assist. No, actually. (laughs) I mean, He does sometimes answer our prayers very graciously in moments where I'm completely at a loss. But even when I have a pretty good idea, okay, this is what I'm going to do. In hindsight, I see again and again and again that God has provided for us. God has blessed us. God has seen us through. God has given us everything we need, really. It may not be everything we could want. I mean, I wouldn't turn down a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before me, but then I don't need that. In fact, I should prefer whatever it is that God has for me. As it turns out, as it has turned out to this point, thank God, that's 17 years of marriage to my lovely wife, Lauren, who was my best friend before she became my wife. And now she's, you know, been promoted. She's not my best friend. That would be a demotion. She's my wife. She moved up. (laughs) But, you know, 17 years of marriage. Thank you, Lord. Nine children, Josiah David, Elihu James, Solomon Emmanuel, Daniel Joseph, Evelyn Grace, Enoch Theophilus, John Lazarus, Andrew Matthias, as of just three short weeks ago, Nathaniel Job. What more does he have for us? I don't know. (laughs) I'll be honest. I'll tell you. I don't know. But I trust his purposes are good. And that is not to say that they will always be pleasant in every circumstance because to this point, plenty of how we started and how we have progressed has been challenging, difficult, trying, but then doesn't that just make it all the sweeter? In hindsight, you get 17 years down the road and you look back and you're like, man, we were so upset with each other that night, man, that was so scary, man, that was so difficult. Man, I didn't know how that was going to turn out at all. Man, I thought I would lost you there, actually. But here we are, by God's grace. Because God doesn't just provide materially, and he doesn't just protect us from physical threats. God has also continually, time and again, provided us with wisdom and grace and forgiveness, a genuine love for one another, a willingness to ask forgiveness when we wrong one another, When we are not living in a kind way to each other, I'm not living with my wife in an understanding way. Oh, Lord, please grant me the humility to ask her forgiveness. Or she's not being respectful towards me. Lord, grant me the wisdom, the humility, the kindness, the patience, the love for my wife to forgive her because that was hurtful, that was rude, that was disappointing, whatever. And vice versa, right? She would say the same. And that, my friends, is perhaps plenty of great plans and purposes that the Lord had for us. I don't know where it goes from here. I don't. But I trust that it'll be an adventure, and it'll be exciting, and it'll be interesting. And the same God whose purposes have not changed in all the time that spans Old Testament, New Testament, 2,000 years of church history— His character hasn't changed to this point. We're told it never will change. His character will remain the same. Whatever else in our circumstances, our mode of life, where we live, how many children we have, what I do for work, how we look as we get more and more gray, start developing some wrinkles and some sagging here and there, and things creak and ache a little bit more when you get up from an awkward seating. God will not change. His purposes ultimately His overarching plan and promise will not change. And that's a very comforting thing. We'll just get to enjoy it, appreciate it, understand it better as we go, as we go together. Two are better than one. And on that note, I'll leave you with this from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, by the way. Son of who? David. And who? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. My threefold cord is me, my wife, and our children. And thank God for that, because it's a blessing. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.